0: We pray that uh, as God matures and strengthens and edifies each of us, that there will grow in us a desire for more and more of his word. I think that's a a byproduct of sanctification is the the idea that your heart and your mind is going to have a a greater want to know uh, what God has revealed about himself. And so um, we're thankful that you've come to hear the word preached this morning, hopefully to participate in Sunday school class. Um, If you've got more of a desire To hear the word of God preached, then uh, on our website you can find resources available to you uh, of different things that are going on throughout the week that you might not be able to participate in, but you can download the podcast of Paul's preaching on Wednesday nights, of the Sunday evening preaching that happens during our Sunday evening service right now, working through the Baptist Catechism, uh, the devotion that happens on Saturday morning at our uh, food pantry. There are several ways that you can listen and and continue to grow in in learning more about God's Word. So we'd encourage you to engage in that. But this morning, we're going to be in Hosea, and we're going to be in chapter 4, beginning chapter 4 today. So go ahead and turn in your scriptures to Hosea chapter 4 as we prepare ourselves to to learn from the Word. I love my wife. Uh, Missy and I are both quite competitive people. Uh, There are no participation trophies at the Neves home. Uh, My wife, on principle, will not roll over and let her children win at Uh, (laughs) Candyland. They have to earn it, right? So one night, Missy and I are uh, playing a game with another couple some years ago. You might have heard of the game. It's called Sorry. It's a very simple game. It's called Sorry for Good Reason. Uh, There are moves that you can make that not only increase your chances of winning, but also will simultaneously decrease your opponent's chances of winning in this game. And so if you somehow manage to advance your own game piece by knocking off your opponent's piece and sending them back to the beginning of the game, it's tradition to look at them and say, sorry. And I did just that. As the game was drawing near to an end, this particular night, every move began to matter more and more. And I rolled the die. Uh, I had more than one piece active on the board so I had some choices to make. Which one will I advance? Which one will I move forward? I could have moved any of them but I chose to move the piece that landed exactly at the beginning of a slide and as my piece slid down the board it advanced my token even further but in the process more importantly it allowed me to knock off one of Missy's tokens sending it all the way back to the beginning of the board and seriously hurting her chances of defeating me that night. I looked at my wife, I smiled a little smile, and I said, sorry. She looked back at me, did not smile, and declared to me very matter-of-factly, we are in a fight. (laughs) The temperature of the room seemed to drop 10 degrees or so. I don't remember who won or lost the game sorry that night, but rest assured, I lost. (laughs) Something similar will happen here at the beginning of the fourth chapter of Hosea's prophecy. God, in a sense, declares to the northern kingdom of Israel, we are in a fight. So that his covenant people don't make the mistake of thinking that things are okay between the two of them, Yahweh articulates a legal charge against the northern ten tribes laying out specifically what Israel is not doing and what they are doing that is in violation of the covenant agreement that he has made with them. So if you have your Bibles open to Hosea chapter 4, we're going to read only the first two verses of this chapter this morning. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer and thank the Lord for what he will reveal of himself today. God, humble us. Lord, we we know that your word is eternal. We know that it displays some of your holiness to us, God, and we want to see that holiness. We want to know your glory, God. And so I pray that you will make us small today as we look at your scriptures and see how big you are. Father, I come into this pulpit knowing that there is nothing I have done or could do that would earn me the right to preach these things, but because your son has done great things, uh, you have invited me here to preach. And so I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would fill this time, that we would understand what it is you want to communicate to us, Lord God, and that it would bring about change in us, that it would enlighten us, Father, that it would strengthen us and embolden us and give us a greater love for your son, Jesus Christ, and the new covenant into which he has invited his church. We praise you, Lord, and thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. That word controversy here indicates that God has a case. He has a, a, a quarrel or a fight with Israel. They have a dispute amongst the two of them. And so, in a sense, this is legal language. In fact, this, these two verses are framed as a legal case being brought against the northern kingdom of Israel. And that's an interesting way for God to communicate his issue with the northern kingdom if God desires to press charges against someone who has offended Him, in this case, His covenant people, then who does God take the dispute to? Who can He appeal to in order to pursue justice? There is no higher authority than God Himself, is there? Romans chapter 13, verse 1 through 2 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur a judgment. By this passage, we are made aware of the fact that God uses governments to enact righteousness in the world, to make sure that things don't get too out of hand. But we also see here the, the clear principle that the governments of the world would have zero power at all unless God had given them power in the first place. Every authority that has any right to judge has received that authority from the greatest source of authority himself, and that is God. There's no one higher up the chain of command. There's no one else to appeal to. Yahweh is at the pinnacle. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me all delegated authority is channeled through God the Son who is appointed judge of all things. And what kind of a judge is Christ? We can think back to Genesis 18. Do you remember when Abraham is in Sodom? Or rather, Lot's in Sodom. And he is uh, being revealed to him that there is a great judgment that is coming upon that city. And so he is he's burdened by this knowledge. He knows that God is a swift and just judge. And he knows that the sin in Sodom is great. And so in verse 25 of chapter 18 in Genesis, Lot says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, you shall not the judge of all earth do what is just. Lot is confessing here that he knows that, that God is the judge of all the earth. And he's also confessing that God can only do what is just. And so he goes on to beg and plead that if God were to find 50 people in Sodom who were holy and righteous, that he might allow his judgment to pass over the city. And then when God agrees to that, he, he starts to think again about those numbers and he shrinks it down farther and further until just 10. If you can find 10 who are righteous in the city, will you put your justice to the side and, and not condemn the people of Sodom? And we know uh, from our perspective in history that there were not enough righteous in Sodom for that place to be spared. And so Lot and his wife and his two daughters were removed from that city. And they being the only ones who called upon the name of the Lord were spared the judgment that came when the fire and brimstone fell upon Sodom. God is a judge and he judges perfectly justly. 1 Peter 4 verses 4 through 5. With respect to this, Peter says, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God is not judge over those who are currently alive. He is judge over all who have ever existed. History is underneath the judgment of the living God. Hebrews 6, 13 through 14, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. So who does God appeal to when he has a case against someone who has offended him? He appeals to himself. God is, in a sense, their judge. Amen. He is ultimately the one who determines the guilt and innocence of all. God is his own jury. He does not defer to a panel of experts to help him determine this. He does not need their counsel. He knows definitively who is guilty and who is not. And to those who are found guilty... God is also executioner. He is the one that ensures that justice is metered out properly and fully. And this idea of God being judge, jury, and executioner, this idea of unilateral justice, is not a scenario that human beings tend to think fondly of. Why? Because humans are, by our very nature, unjust. And our perception of facts is intrinsically limited. And since we don't know all there is to know about everything, we are prone to make mistakes and see things the wrong way. Not to mention that every one of us holds biases and prejudices that will eventually influence our perceptions of justice. And so people typically establish good practices in in earthly societies whereby the responsibility and authority to adjudicate matters is spread around. It doesn't just rest on one person's head. Several people are involved in the process, which creates checks and balances and a better chance of achieving true justice. This all hinges on the idea of a higher outside authority, what we would call the law, presiding over and guiding all the legal processes that citizens under the law are privy to. We, we often think of this <clears throat> as the better way of doing things. And, and did we not witness this important check and balance in our own government this past Friday? In 1973, a dangerous precedent was set in the landmark case Roe v. Wade. When the United States Supreme Court ruled that the federal government did not have the right to stop a woman from ending her unborn child's life by way of abortion, it opened the floodgates to terrible policies in the land. That judgment paved the way to the legal slaughter of more than 63 million unborn children in our country over the last 29 years. After years of impassioned debate and controversy, the recent Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization determined that the United States Constitution does not confer any fundamental right to an abortion and thereby placed the responsibility of determining abortion's legality in the hands of each individual state. In anticipation of this, more than 20 states had already prepared legislation that would strictly limit abortion among their citizens in the event that Roe v. Wade was struck down. And 13 of those states set up measures with something called a trigger clause, which means as soon as the Supreme Court ruled that Roe v. Wade was unconstitutional, then that means that those laws would immediately come into effect. This is a huge win for due process, and it represents victory for truth and justice and a great step forward in the effort to abolish abortion altogether but it also exposes the weakness of man's ability to judge properly and purely in the first place. We've had to endure this bad policy for decades now, and so many children have never seen the light of day because of the wickedness of our our, our nation and our inability to see truth for what it is. Human beings make mistakes. We see things incorrectly, and sometimes the consequences are severely dire. God, on the other hand, needs no check, he needs no balance, for all he does is right and good. He can only rule justly, there is no option for him. He can only act in ways that will hurt what is evil and defend what is good. And so though we are nervous about unilateral leadership, we should actually rejoice that Yahweh is the highest external authority to which anyone can appeal and that when he has an issue, he must only appeal to himself. There is no need for him to look to any outside help, any perspective that differed from God's could only represent a pervasion of justice and not an improvement upon it. And this is also why Jesus teaches in Matthew 9 to pray the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He is teaching us in that section of the Sermon on the Mount that the right way to approach God in prayer is to bring to Him our needs and our desires and our cares, but to always understand those through the lens of the fact that God's perspective on history is perfect. And in His sovereignty, He will bring about what is best for us, even if it doesn't match what we have been asking for and pleading for again and again to Him in prayer. If we truly understand who God is, how just His rulings are, and how perfect His understanding of the truth, then using prayer as a tool... To try to get God to change His mind and conform His opinion to our will really doesn't make any sense at all. God doesn't have opinions. God only knows what is good and true and right. So God has not revealed His complete will to us. So we do need to share our thoughts and our desires with Him in prayer. We don't know exactly what He wants. He hasn't shown us everything that He intends to do. Perhaps in prayer, in the process of taking our needs and desires and dreams before Him, We'll discover that he wants some of the same things that we want. But we share our perspectives with the understanding that if what we want does not match what God wants, then it is our will that should bend and conform to his, not the other way around. God, the perfect judge, the highest jury, is himself the cosmic prosecuting attorney. And sitting on the stands awaiting for their crimes to be judged is the northern kingdom of Israel. There is no one who can testify on their behalf and prove these charges to be false. There is no one who can present a clever argument exposing something that God overlooked in order to get Israel off the hook. The people of the north are staring down the barrel of justice right now in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. So what kind of a controversy is being judged here. And on what grounds does Yahweh seek persecution or to prosecute the, the northern kingdom? The charges that God brings against the north are, are serious and they're based not only on the things that the Israelites have done, but they're also based on what Israel has failed to do. So we're going to look this morning at a twofold uh, set of failures in the northern kingdom, what they have not done and what they have done, sins of omission and sins of commission. Before we look at these charges in depth, though, let us stop for a moment and let us remember that the covenant these followers of God find themselves under is not the covenant that the church enjoys today. Let us not make the mistake of putting ourselves into the shoes of the northern kingdom or drawing direct applications from their situation, for the new covenant in Jesus' blood is in every way better than the Old Covenant that governed God's interaction with the Northern Kingdom. To miss the distinction here and to confuse the categories would lead to a great many problems in the life of a modern-day saint. We need to see how the Old Covenant is different than the New Covenant. The Old Covenant represents the law of God. It didn't come to the nation of Israel without some measure of grace. It was a kind of gift in and of itself Because God was under no obligation to enter into covenantal relationship with Abraham when he came and promised him that that he would be a father of many nations, when he would bless the world through Abraham and Sarah's offspring. God did not have to do that. It was voluntary. So to enter into that covenant as well was an act of grace. The honor of being God's covenant people, the potential for great blessing and favor were all the kind gestures that God had voluntarily given to the nation of Israel. But the Old Covenant was not stable in the ways that the New Covenant is stable. A very key, important aspect of the Old Covenant boils down to a single word, and that word is if, I-F, if. If you do this, Israel, then this will happen. If you obey me in this way, then blessing will surely fall to you. But if, the same word, if you break this law, If you neglect what I have commanded you to do, here will be your consequence. You will not be able to escape the judgment of God if you do not keep these commands and the institutes of this covenant that were being established in the moment. The if carries the potential for great blessing, but it also carries the potential for great loss and disappointment. The fact that the blessings of the old covenant were contingent upon the obedience of the people who were in that covenant with God not only hurts its ability to endure, it also ensured that that form of covenant would not be able to secure peace between God and man forever. Nevertheless, the Old Covenant played a very important role. The Old Covenant proved in an unmistakable way that mankind, regardless of the advantages they are given by God, is not capable of having victory over their sin to the point of being at peace with Him. How did Israel handle that covenant or those covenants? The expression of covenant that was made with Abraham and then Moses and then David. How did God handle those conditional covenants? He was faithful. How did the people handle those conditional covenants? They, time and time again, broke the command of God. They fell short of what God had ordered them to be as his people, as his representatives in the land. Man is not capable of keeping the law of God Man needs help because of the corruption that has come to us through Adam the first man. We have something in us that naturally falls away from God, that naturally wants to rebel against the laws that he has given. And so we have another covenant, a better covenant. We have the new covenant. The new covenant is not a covenant of works. It is not a covenant where God says if to us. Do this and I will give you eternity with me in heaven. That's not the new covenant. It is a covenant of grace, a covenant that is purely the generosity of God poured out on a people who do not deserve to receive it. The new covenant does not ignore sin. In fact, the new covenant is necessary because God, as a just God, must judge sin. God cannot just pretend as though His chosen people have not broken the law. He can't pretend that way. He knows they've broken the law. There must be some sort of punishment put upon those who have broken the laws of God. For He is a God of order, a God of truth, a God of goodness. And so that sin, that law breaking, needed to be dealt with. But because of man's inability to overcome his own sin and stick to the law that God had given, a different solution must be presented. And it is presented not by the defense, not by those who are under scrutiny, not by Israel, but by the judge himself. God sent his own son, Jesus, to take on flesh and enter into the world in which we live. Jesus was born of a virgin and born under the law. And because he was born under the law, all the requirements of the previous covenants, the the covenant of the law, was placed upon Jesus. And Jesus was able to do what you and I cannot do. Where all of us have broken the covenant law of God, Jesus stood firm and true. He obeyed God the Father. He honored Him with every action. There was no sin of commission in Christ's life, nor was there ever sin of omission. Everything that a godly man is supposed to do, Christ, the perfect man, did. And He did this not just to boast of His perfection, but He did this because the law That we had broken needed to be satisfied. And so, in fulfilling the law, Jesus brought his perfect and spotless life and offered it up in the place of sinners like you and like me. Jesus was allowed, or allowed himself rather, to be judged unjustly. He allowed himself to be nailed to the cross and to suffer and to die in the place of sinners like us. And this new covenant substitution fixes whatever was lacking in the old covenant. In the old covenant, the if was on us. But in the new covenant, there doesn't need to be an if because our eternity is in the hands of Christ and there are no questions about whether Christ will have victory or not. Christ rose from the grave on the third day and showed that his promises were truly fulfilled. That those who trust in him would also likewise rise from the dead one day and receive new bodies that would be fit to worship him forever in a perfect reconciled covenant relationship. So whereas the old covenant presents the potential of a peaceful relationship with God, the new covenant presents a guarantee of a restored peaceful relationship with God. What differentiates the two is the presence of that legal substitute who is capable of keeping the terms of the covenant in a perfect and faithful way. Jesus Christ can accomplish what we could not accomplish and he has done so at Calvary. So church, if you are his, you need him. Apart from Jesus, the covenant is destined to fail. He is the linchpin around which everything that has to do with our salvation spins and turns. Under the old covenant law, the blessings of the covenant were contingent on Israel's obedience. The charges brought against the northern kingdom addresses both their negligence and their disobedience to the law. Not only have they been negligent to proactively behave as if they are are, are not in the covenant... They have also egregiously violated the clear terms of the covenant and through disobedience to the law have dishonored the the terms that God laid out for them. And so let's look first at these sins of omission. What is lacking in the northern kingdom that should be there since God has drawn them into covenant? First of all, there is no faithfulness there. There is no faithfulness among the people of Israel in the northern tribes. The word for faithfulness there is literally the same word that is used for truth. At the heart of any concept of faithfulness is a commitment to hold fast to what is true. Any covenant succeeds only if there is faithfulness according to the truth. And this manifests in Israel's compulsive desire to join itself with some other power beyond Yahweh. We've already spoken at some length about this. How God has brought to the attention of the northern kingdom through Hosea their sin of trusting in the chariots of Egypt and in the powers beyond their borders rather than trusting in their own God to protect them and provide for them. They have, instead of trusting in the perfect power of God, trusted in the weak and imperfect powers of other nations like themselves. And so this lack of faithfulness means that Israel doesn't believe the truth that God has expounded to them, that in making them his people, He will meet every need that they have. Had they believed the covenant promises, they would have trusted for Him to provide. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up with me to Deuteronomy chapter 31 for a moment. Deuteronomy 31 occurs just before the nation of Israel is allowed to enter into the the land of promise. They have been wandering in the wilderness for a generation Uh, because of their own lack of confidence in God and unwillingness to follow His commands and charge forward. Uh, But this time of waiting is over and they are about to, to make that move from the wilderness into this place of promise. And in Deuteronomy 31, verses 3 through 6, Prophet Moses records, The Lord your God Himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head. As the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded to you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Had the Israelites believed the covenant promises, they would have trusted their God to provide for them. There would have been no need for them to go and try to seek refuge in Egypt or some other mighty nation. They would have known that God had said, this I will do. I am your protector. Find your defense in me. Had they believed the covenant promises, they would have trusted that God would protect them from any enemy that came to try to rob away those covenant promises that were theirs according to the word of God. Had they believed the covenant promises, they would have trusted the wisdom of God. They would have looked to His authority and guidance and direction rather than seeking to come up with a better idea or a better plan that would bring them greater security on their own. And yet this nation, represented by the people in the north, had failed miserably to have faith in the covenant promises that God had given. Still in Deuteronomy 31, look at verses 16 through 18. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, And then this people will rise and they will whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. And then my anger will be kindled against them in that day and I will forsake them and hide my face from them and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? and I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done because they have turned to other gods. This is the providence of God playing out. The Lord knew that the northern kingdom would eventually end up in this place. The Lord knew that the north and the south would separate, that there would be this schism between the people of God, and the Lord knew that it would be up to him to heal this schism. The faithfulness that was lacking in the northern kingdom was an indictment on them. They did not trust the covenant, and since they did not trust the covenant, they were not seeing the blessings of the covenant. Secondly, missing from the people in the north is a steadfast love for Yahweh. There is no steadfast love among them. This kind of love is a particular type of love that we see in very important places in the Old Testament. It is the Hebrew word hesed, and hesed means a loyal love of devotion a loyal love of devotion. It is the kind of love that we see Ruth showing to her mother-in-law, Naomi. You probably remember her story. Ruth had married a Jewish man. She had become his bride, though she was from the land of Moab. And she was a part of a family, but a great famine was in the land. And not only did the patriarch of the family die, Naomi was married to a man who had two sons, and he passed away, but also did her two sons pass away. Ruth was married to one of those sons. Naomi, grieving the loss of her son, recognized that it would probably be very likely that her daughters would want to return to their own people in Moab. And so she allows her, her daughter-in-law, Ruth, uh, to go. She says, you don't have to stay with me. I'm an old lady. I'm just a burden to you. You can go back to Moab. But Ruth displayed this hesed, this loyal love. Ruth said, far be it from me that I should leave. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And so Ruth clung to Naomi. Whatever was going to happen to Naomi was going to happen to Ruth too, and she stuck with her. The circumstances were not going to change her love for this family that she had entered into. This is a great display or example of hesed love. It is a kind of love that is not nullified by circumstance. It is not dampened by hardship or trial. It is a love that loves no matter what. God uniquely positioned, is uniquely positioned to give this kind of love to people like us because God has no needs. God is never at risk. He cannot be made vulnerable because God is totally self-sufficient. Therefore, if we fail him or fall short, he's no less the God he has always been. So he is uniquely positioned to love us with this kind of Hesed love. It does no damage to his person to be let down by us. He remains holy and pure and good. Despite plenty of reasons to turn away, even covenantal reasons, Yahweh had persisted. He had not gotten rid of Israel when they grumbled in the wilderness. He had not gotten rid of Israel when they didn't obey his orders, marching into the land of promise when they defeated Nineveh and yet uh, uh, the, a family within the nation of Israel stole of the goods that were supposed to be uh, laid to rest. God had plenty of reasons to turn away from Israel and to forsake this people who had forsaken him in their disobedience. But he persisted. And yet at the first signs of struggle, Israel's affections are constantly being held back from their God, Yahweh. How is this hesed supposed to be expressed from Israel's side? Well, it is to be expressed in faithful worship to their God, They are to praise him and praise him alone. They are to love him at the exclusion of every other god in the world. And yet they have fallen into a trap, into a pit of putting other gods before Yahweh. They have worshipped the gods of the land, the gods of the people they conquered and kicked out of the land because of their unfaithfulness to Yahweh. Now they have adopted those very same gods, gods such as Asherah and Baal and, and Molech. As Gomer had sought satisfaction in the arms of men who were not her husband, Israel had coveted the attention of other gods. And so this hesed is not there. This steadfast love is completely lacking in the northern kingdom. Thirdly, what else is is missing? Knowledge of God. There is no knowledge of God. And again, he mentions in the land. That's something to take note of. We're going to expand upon this next week because we're going to be taking a moment to look at just verse 3 next week. Next week's sermon will be a bit of a topical sermon. It's not too often that you get opportunities when you're preaching through the scripture verse by verse to really stop and look at what it means that the land is also cursed because of our disobedience. And so we're gonna see that next week when it says, therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish and also the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heaven and even the fish of the sea are taken away. We're gonna see how the disobedience of those in the Northern Kingdom was also affecting their land. It was an indictment upon the land that God had given to them as promise. Notice that the title, the inhabitants of the land, is used here as he's making this formal uh, claim against them. It's quite, an in, uh, it's quite an impersonal title, isn't it? The inhabitants of the land. It, it seems almost as if Yahweh is drawing himself away from this people that he has loved for so long, that he is no longer calling them his children or his His. Promised people, but he is calling them inhabitants of the land as if they are simply now occupants, renters almost, who have broken a rental agreement. A lackadaisical attitude regarding the covenant resulted in a people who misunderstood who God is and misunderstood what God wants. This knowledge is lacking in the north. This term for knowledge, da'ath, plays a prominent role in the fourth chapter of Hosea's prophecy. We're going to speak more about that as well in two weeks when we see how a lack of knowledge has destructive consequences among the people. Now there are several key ways that the North's unwillingness to remain connected to the covenant people in the South has specifically contributed to this lack of knowledge. And this is something we've, we've talked about a little bit already. The schism between the Northern and the Southern kingdoms was part and parcel to the, uh, the condemnation that God brought upon the Northern Kingdom when he tells Hosea to name his first son Jezreel. You remember that? The Jeroboam broke off from Rehoboam and started this whole other kingdom with the ten northern tribes. In cutting themselves off from the southern tribes, the northern kingdom of Israel cut themselves off from the temple. They stopped worshiping in the house of God. Not going into the house of God meant they weren't looking at the beautiful and intricate design of the house of God. They weren't seeing how God was to be worshiped exactly the way that he said he was to be worshiped. They weren't sacrificing precisely. And so their sacrifices began to take on the flavor and the the form of the sacrifices that were being offered to these other false gods in the high places. they had cut themselves off from the priesthood as well. Remember, most of the Levites were staying down in Judah. They, They wanted to be around the temple. And so they began to ordain priests who were not even of Aaron. They were not Aaronite. And so these people who were not qualified to be priests were, were given the robe of priesthood. And so there began to become a, a weakening of those who were to intercede. There was less accountability from these leaders. There was less good intercession to God on behalf of the Northern Kingdom. And then they diluted their worship and their attention by pursuing these other gods directly, which no doubt caused confusion in their understanding of the true God, for there is no one like the true God, Yahweh. Whenever we attribute to Yahweh facets of false man-made gods, we're not seeing the true Yahweh. You might recall at the end of chapter 2, after Hosea has determined to pull back his blessings from his wife, Gomer, after he has allowed her to experience the great shame and vulnerability of her sinful choices, that there is nonetheless a moment of hope planted there in chapter 2. There's a glimmer of light pointing forward to the gracious love that God will command Hosea to once again give to his bride a love that points forward to the gracious love that God will give both Israel and the Gentile nations at the inauguration of the new covenant. Verse 19 in chapter 2 said, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord Do you see how everything that's lacking in the northern kingdom, God has a plan to provide for them through the beautiful new covenant? The people of the north were deficient, but by God's redeeming work, he would restore not only the peace between his chosen people and himself, he would also restore these byproducts of a healthy unity between God and his people. The new covenant addresses these deficiencies brilliantly. We are told in Jeremiah 31 that he intends through this new covenant to give his people a new heart. In other words, the desires that drew the Israelites away and into sin, those would be replaced with godly desires through this new covenant. The inclusion of the Holy Spirit in this promise would mean that we can now learn to love what is holy and good and hate what is wicked. We're told that we'll be transformed by the renewing of our minds, right? Romans 12, verse 2 So God helps us to think differently about who he is. He helps us to understand the covenant to a greater depth and degree. And he will write these words of the covenant upon our heart so that we will begin to naturally want to do what is right. We don't do that perfectly now, but as we grow in discipleship, more and more do we, we, we draw closer to this covenant promise where there will be a day when I won't have to teach you the word of God. Paul will not have to teach you the word of God. I in Sunday school and the Sunday school teachers who help our little ones won't have to do this teaching because the word will be so intrinsically in us that we will always want to do what is good. This is the, the product of glory when we leave this world and God takes away the sinful flesh that still holds us back and gives us one that is fit for eternity. So the new covenant overcomes each of these deficiencies that have been laid out in the, northern, in the northern kingdom. And they are qualities that can only flow from our connection with God. If the people of God have paid no attention to God, if there is no authentic worship to God, if their fellowship with God is casual or pragmatic or non-existent, then these qualities will be lacking because they have to flow from God to man. In the absence of holy devotion, What has flourished? We now move from the sins of omission to the sins of commission. These very qualities that we might identify as the antithesis of God's very character and nature. Let's go through them quickly. The northern kingdom was guilty of swearing. Now this Hebrew term refers to making a vow or declaring a curse to someone. It is almost certainly referring to the emptiness of the vows that Israel made in their covenanting with God. They have said, yes, we will be your people and we accept you as our God, and yet they are living as if those things are not true. We can generally expect that what an honest man says, he will do. But when a covenant is struck between two parties, there is enough at stake that a greater assurance is needed. And so by the terms of the legal covenant, promises are sworn by both parties to act and behave in such a way that each party, each participant in the covenant, will be able to operate in a trusting way towards one another. The two sides swear to conduct themselves according to the terms of that covenant and in the ancient Near East tradition, the covenant was sealed by the blood of a sacrifice and that blood indicated two things. We see this in Genesis 17 when God instructs Abraham to make a sacrifice and he drives away the vultures but then the, the very presence of God passes between the sacrifices indicating that he would keep the sacri- the covenant for for Abraham. When the Blood sacrifice was made at the inauguration of a covenant, it meant that the covenant was to last until the death of one of the two parties. We see that in the covenant of marriage, don't we? That we are to love one another until death do us part. Jesus taught us that marriage does not last into eternity. And so when that covenant is fulfilled, that covenant is fulfilled when one of the two parties passes away. The second symbolism that we see in the the sacrifice made to inaugurate a covenant is that a violation of the terms of the covenant would result in the blood of an offending guilty party being spilled as a repercussion. And so covenants were very, very serious. When these vows were violated, it put the trust between the two parties in jeopardy. And that's why the scripture urges great caution to us in making any kind of a vow. James chapter 5 verse 12 says, but above all, my brothers do not swear Either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Israel has sworn to be the people of God, and yet they have failed to uphold that promise to Him. They have forsaken the law, they have dishonored their representative role of shining the light of God into the other nations. They're giving no worship or incorrect worship to God, worship that is not pleasing to Him. They've forsaken the Sabbath. They have not shown mercy and compassion to their fellow Israelites. So God's terms are not being handled properly. In addition to that, the nation and its leaders have made treatises with foreign powers, and they have offered affections to foreign gods. And so they have broken this command not to swear improperly, both by failing to keep their covenant with Yahweh and by making false covenants with other gods. Secondly, they have committed the the, the sin of lying. The intentional distortion of truth in an effort to deceive another is something that God despises. This occurs by our words, it occurs by actions, and it's completely out of character for one who desires to bear the image of God, who is himself the champion of truth. Isaiah 65, 16 says... He who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. So Israel, Isaiah the prophet here is declaring that God himself is the very embodiment of truth, and that lying is, a, is an insult to his character. If Yahweh is indeed the God of truth, then eschewing the truth for a lie is a denial of the power and the character of God. So to bear false witness is to rebel against the nature and the policy of the king of creation. The sin of lying as it is defined in the old covenant law carries with it a lot of legal implications as well, which is appropriate because remember, these two verses are framed as a legal indictment of the northern kingdom. Again in Deuteronomy, looking at verses 15 through 20 of chapter 19, we read a single witness "'shall not suffice against a person for any crime "'or for any wrong in connection with any offenses "'that he has committed. "'Only on the evidence of two witnesses "'or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. "'If a malicious witness arises "'to accuse a person of wrongdoing, "'then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord.'" Before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. He continues to instruct the nation of Israel on how they are to adjudicate truthfully in verse 18. He says, The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, listen, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity for it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So to lie, in a sense, to get someone else in trouble, to bear false witness against another Israelite, was punishable by the crime you were trying to make the other person guilty for. You can get a sense of the seriousness of this command. The stakes were very high when it came to testifying of the truth. 1 Corinthians 6 reminds us that love rejoices with the truth, right? Yahweh was unable to rejoice over his relationship with Northern Kingdom because there was such a lack of truth there. They were so given to lying and deceit. The third sin that they have committed is murder. The Northern Kingdom was guilty of wrongfully taking human life. From the bloodshed that had stained the valley of Jezreel to the frequent assassinations of the kings who clung to the northern throne, the people had again and again shown little care for the sanctity of human life. They were also guilty of stealing. When we take from, one, from another person what does not belong to us, that is offensive to God. But the matter is even more clearly egregious when we consider just about everything that belonged to the Israelites in the northern kingdom was a gift that God had given to them graciously. Their land was a gift from God. Their autonomy was a gift from God. Their direction and instruction was a gift from the holy God. Their children were a gift from God. Their plentiful crops were a gift from God. All that they had to praise God for were from His hands and yet they stole from one another. Theft is not only a violation of another person's right to private property, it is also a statement that someone does not consider what God has already graciously given to them to be enough or sufficient to care for their needs and well-being. So theft is an insult to the generosity of God. This people who had been given so much looked at what God had blessed them with and said, not enough, and stole from one another. Fifthly, they were committing adultery in the land. I believe this comes down as an indictment both literally and spiritually on the people. The commandment of, uh, against adultery was no doubt violated in both aspects uh, uh, in the way that the northern kingdom was conducting their actions. The people of the land were not honoring the covenant promises to Yahweh rather than loving him exclusively as their God. They had played the harlot with the other false gods we mentioned earlier. Having already seen their infidelity in the realm of worship, it's no doubt that they were also committing physical adultery one to another from their relationships. We know that sin emboldens more sin, and so it would be no surprise to see that covenant relationships of marriage were being violated in the north as well. Can you notice in this pattern of five different indictments against Israel's actions that you can see the the Ten Commandments, the very skeletal structure of God's interaction with the people of Israel being assaulted again and again and again. You curse and you swear. This is a violation of the second commandment uh, of not taking the Lord's name in vain. Uh, When you swear to other gods, you're giving them an honor they don't deserve. So that's a first commandment violation. When you lie to one another, you're violating the ninth commandment of thou shalt not lie. When you murder others, You have thrown the sixth commandment in the gutter and failed to follow it. When you steal from others, the eighth commandment is violated. When you commit adultery, that's a seventh commandment violation. The indictments are lined up against these in the north. And history has shown us what God was declaring here, that there was no excuse for the way that they have turned their backs on God. Their guilt was clear. And the sentence for this guilt has already been partially laid out in the first chapter. Don't forget God's reasoning for instructing Hosea to name his children as he did. Verse four of chapter one, the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel for in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. He goes on to say that he will break the bow of Israel, meaning their military might will be decimated. Verse five, the Lord said, call your second child no mercy for I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Verse 9, and the Lord said, Call his name for this third child, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. These are the charges that are staring the northern kingdom in the face. And they are too much for any man to bear. Because of Israel's brazen and consistent violation of the covenant terms, the relationship that was defined by the old covenant framework was soon to come to an abrupt end. But before we close, I want to point out one more interesting distinction between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Those who are in Christ are not in the Old Covenant, right? If you're a Christian today, you're not in the Old Covenant. So we are observing this scenario play out in the Northern Kingdom from a third-person perspective. We're watching on as interested third party, not as somebody who is experiencing those indictments ourselves. But even in the midst of this national-scale failure, there are those whose hearts were truly faithful to God. The northern kingdom was not absolutely devoid of faith. I mean, there were those who still bowed the knee to the Lord. There were those who grieved the indiscretions of their nations. There were those like Isaiah who recognized their own sin. I am a man of unclean lips, he said. And he rec- they recognized the sin of their countrymen. And Isaiah said, And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. There were those who repented and mourned the corruption of the priesthood. There were those who longed to worship at that temple as God had commanded them to. Were not those men and women who truly did love God, but were in the midst of a, of a wicked nation, were they not preserved through this dark trial? Was not God able to save them through this judgment and preserve them as his own? Yes, he was. And how did he do that? Did he save them and preserve them through the old covenant law? No. Remember, the old covenant law is there to show us that we cannot make our way back to the Lord. So even though there was a love for the people of God there, that love wasn't sufficient to save them. No, he saved those old covenant Jews through the inauguration of the new covenant. Saints, we will one day worship along Hosea in eternity. And he's not going to get to the new heavens and the new earth through a different path than us. He's going to get to the new heavens and the new earth through Jesus Christ, the Savior. When we stand in the new heavens and the new earth and we sing out praises and adoration of the Savior, our voices will mingle with the voices of Hosea and Moses and Sarah and countless others who walked the earth long before Jesus did. Those Old Testament brothers and sisters will stand there redeemed for the exact same reason that the modern-day Christian will. Their place and security was not secured by their better keeping of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant's job was not to save, but to show us that if we're to be saved, then God must save us. So Hosea and Moses and Sarah and the others were under the Old Covenant, but by God's providence, they were also members of the New Covenant. They were the elect of God. And when Christ died upon that cross, that, that effective sacrifice covered the sins of those like Hosea and Moses and Sarah. The author of Hebrews speaks about them in the 11th chapter of his, his uh, exposition. It says in verse 13, these all died, mentioning the Old Testament saints who were pillars of faith and examples to the New Testament church. He says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the land, on earth, For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And so here, even as Israel was laid undeniably guilty before the Lord God, accused of sins they were truly guilty of, as they stood exposed and vulnerable to his wrath, those who truly had faith in Yahweh had Christ as their advocator and and mediator even then. Christ saved them retroactively. They are now a part of that universal church that we claim membership in as well. And so in the new covenant of grace, we don't chuck the law out the window. We don't live as lawless people. We still are grateful for the example of the saints that went before. And we can learn from their example to not deny the important aspects of the covenant that help us to understand how we are to behave with our God, how we are to conduct ourselves, but we also recognize that the new covenant that God has placed us in, this covenant of grace, is in every way superior to the one that these uh, Old Testament figures had to deal with because the new covenant of grace assures us an eternity with with God in heaven, not by our power, but by the power of the God who saves Let's have a word of prayer. God, we thank you for your grace, and we ask that you would continue to help us to benefit from the testimony of Hosea, your prophet. We pray, God, that you would give us discernment, give us the ability to understand uh, the difference between those who lived back then and those who live now. We thank you, God, that you were saving people even in those times, even in the darkest days of Israel's history, Lord, when it seemed that all were lost, even when Elijah wanted to die because it seemed like he was the only one left to had not bend the knee in worship to other false gods. Lord, you assured him that there were 7,000 people, a perfect number of saints left who were still holding fast to the truth. And so I pray, Lord God, that we would recognize your sovereign hand working throughout history. And that as we look at the, the indictment that was levied upon those in the north, that our, our fear for you, Lord God, would be kindled, that we would recognize that you are truly the one true judge, but also our, our great confidence in Christ would grow even more that we would recognize that we can come boldly before the throne of grace because you are the one who has made it possible for us to stand there free from guilt, washed by the blood of the lamb. Help us to preach and proclaim this truth to the world for there are many yet to hear it. God, may you use us as light and salt. We desire to see you glorified in all that we say and do. We pray this and ask it in Jesus' name, amen.